The title of today is Go and Gather. Matthew chapter 9, I'm jumping right in today. Um, I tend to read a little bit more when uh, moved emotionally, so forgive me in that way. And I, I'm very, uh, the word passion came out today in our worship. And um, when Emily said the word passion, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would infuse passion in you today. Um, not, not just encouragement per se or uh, an emotional thing that happens, but I pray that um, the sermon, the word of God would produce a passion in his people today. Amen. Matthew 9 says this, rethink religion. Okay, this is where we are, rethink religion. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and handling every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, I just want to pay attention to the word, the crowds. These are crowds of people. These are not just a few people, not just one person. This is crowds of people. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We'll come back to that a little bit later. I titled the sermon again, Go and Gather. And I apologize, I don't have sermon notes. I love the fact that some of you are like, ah, where are my sermon notes? Um, but uh, that just means that, you know, we care. We love to take notes in our, in our church family. But our, our printer went down and we're changing companies. And so we didn't, weren't able to print them. I'll have them for you next week. Genesis chapter 12 I want to start from this place, and I'll come back to Matthew 9 later, and I'll connect these for you. But I want to go back to Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to preach all the way to the book of Revelation, so it's going to be a long sermon, okay? And um, I am. I'm going to get to Revelation in just a minute, so I'm going to hit on a couple of things. But because of what's happening in our world today, I don't want to be a pastor, and I don't want to be uh, a person um, who ignores what's happening in the world. I, always, I don't always get engaged with what's happening in the world and, and preach from that place, but um, I felt like this is something we need to address because of all the things that are happening, and I don't want to discount it. So I want to help educate in a way. I don't know what you know. I don't know how much history you know. So I want to help educate a little bit about this. Go and gather. That's the title of the sermon. Keep that in your heart and mind. Go and gather. All right, Genesis chapter 12. The Lord tells Abraham this, or Abram at that time. He says, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Now watch, he says, I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. I will curse them. All right, all, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So, Abram is in the current country of Mesopotamia, modern day, it's Iraq. This is where he's located in what you know as Iraq today. And he calls him from Iraq to go into a land of Canaan. This territory land, which you read about in the story of Joshua. In verse 6, it tells us that Abraham goes and where he lands. Verse 6, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morat Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. So you say, where's Shechem? Because Shechem matters because that's what he's promised the land. Modern day, it's Nablus, N-A-B-L-U-S, 
which is in modern-day West Bank. Now, you say, well, that was then. Well, read Genesis 13, 15. All the land that you see, I will give to you, your offspring, forever. In case you didn't know, God fulfills his promises. You can debate where you think the land belongs and whose it is. You can hear stories about that, but God has spoken. So I'll let him do the speaking and I won't say anything else. Genesis 15, God establishes what's called the Abrahamic covenant. If you go read Genesis 15, you'll see the covenant in its totality. But the story begins in 12, 13, 14, 15. So you've got to go back and read all of those to make sure you understand it. And I want you to see three aspects of the covenant that God gives. So he takes Abraham, he says in verse 5 of chapter 15, he took him outside and said, look up at the sky, count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, which I love that language. I know you can't really count them, but go ahead and try, right? So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of her and the Chaldeans to give you this land. And I, just interesting here, to take possession of it. Take possession of it. There's people in it, but I want you to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain the possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young and a pigeon. And then it keeps going on. So a covenant in biblical ancient times, this is what it is. It's an agreement between two parties. It was a completely common thing that people would do. They would engage in a covenant. And what they would do is ultimately slay two animals, spill the blood, cut it in half, walk by it. I mean, I'm so glad we have handshakes today. That sounds a little bit better. But, you know, they, they walk past over this blood. They spill the blood, they walk through it, they pass through it. And the reason this is done is it was a way of saying, if one of us goes back on our word, this is what will happen to us. It was a, like a, what we would say a contract today, an agreement, a will. This is a treaty that has been signed. So God makes this covenant. What makes it unique, though, is that we know, continue to read the story, that God, while Abraham is sleeping, God passes through it, and it simply makes an agreement to himself, it makes it an unconditional agreement. Basically, it's not, it's not based on the conditions of Abraham and his life or anybody else. In other words, he's going to fulfill what he says he's going to do based on his own word. Nothing else needs to be done. I will make sure that I fulfill this covenant, and nothing is going to stop it. All right, so this is the covenant that is made, and God does it. Three aspects of the covenant I just want to bring attention to. Number one, in any covenant that was made, it was about security. If you look at to text and you read its totality, God is saying, I am going to bring my nation and I will be your God and you'll be my people and I'll watch over you. There's a covenant agreement of security. I will be the protector of you. In the New Testament, he talks about like a hen who protects its chicks under the wings. I'm going to protect my people, O city of Jerusalem. This is something that God has clearly said. Number two is prosperity. He says, I'm going to bless the nation. 
I'm going to make it prosperous. I'm going to bless it. You're going to get multiple children. All these people will be blessed through you. You see prosperity also happening in the covenant. And third, that you cannot ignore is territory. Territory was a part of the covenant. And it says this is a geographical location that I will give you. This is part of the covenant that God has made. And God does finish what he starts. But during the gap of this, I want to bring attention to something that is said back in Genesis 12, where he says, I'll bless those who bless you, but whoever curses you, I'll curse. I want you to notice that when God comes into the scene to talk to these people and talk to Abraham about what's going to happen, he says, but in the gap between the time that all this land and all these fulfillments come, there will be people who try to curse you. In other words, there will be conflict. You can expect conflict. You will see conflict. It will happen. There will be conflict. Always. Until ultimately we see that Jesus eventually will return. God's people, this Jewish nation, started with Abraham. If you go back to Noah, but we're starting with Abram for context today. Will experience conflict. This is something that is clearly spoken. And God says, but I'll be with you through it all. So the nation of Israel is eventually established in the land where Abraham had dwelt. We know that historically, he did. He establishes it through David's reign. Jerusalem gets instituted. And this is historically all there. Then in around 70 AD, following the death, resurrection of Jesus, Rome, you can go through history, go through scripture, you'll see the Jewish people constantly at war, constantly people taking over the land in this constant conflict. Fast forward to AD 70, or 70 AD, Rome destroys Jerusalem. One million people die, many of them Jews. One belief is that all the wood was cut down from the trees in the land in order to hang every man on a cross. Women and children were sold into slavery. And God's sheep are scattered around the world. Then somewhere between AD 132 and AD 135, the second Jewish revolt happens. Jews begin to try to reassemble themselves and go back into their homeland. They begin a war and a revolt against what is happening in their land. The Roman Empire comes in. And the Roman Empire at the time is Hadrian. And Hadrian goes into battle with the Jews and completely destroys and annihilates Jerusalem once again. And he returns back to Rome. And after the destruction, as he goes back, he makes a medieval Latin acronym statement, and I'll do my best to pronunciate it. Here, Saloma esta perdita. This is where we get the phrasing, and most of you know it as today, as hep hep. Hooray. Hip, hip, hooray. The audience would shout. Which in translation is Jerusalem is lost. Jerusalem is lost. Some of you are like, I'm never going to say hip, hip, hooray again. You know, it's amazing to me how oftentimes we do things without thinking. We say things without thinking, think it through. How easy Satan can 
carve himself into our culture and we say things and think, say things and think things that we don't even realize what we're saying and thinking. Would you just think it through? It makes you think about the scripture where God said, be slow to speak and quick to listen. Think it through. Make sure you know what you're saying before you say it. Epip, hooray, Jerusalem is lost. All through history, the Jews have been scattered around the world, and for many years, Israel was without a nation, without a home. You see it. And then on May 14th, 1948, Israel was given a place to call home again. Against many wars, they were still a people, still a nation. Although for centuries and centuries, people had tried to wipe them off the map, they couldn't do it. I wonder why. God had made a covenant, and he will fulfill what he promises. There will always be people who want to kill Jewish people. No people have been oppressed over the past 2,000 years more than Jews have. I challenge you on that. They will constantly be oppressed. And I want to show you today why that is. Many of us ask with what's going on in the world today, why? Why is this happening? Is it really over land? Is it over this? Is it over that? Is it over this? I want to show you something in Revelation because I want you to see where it stems from. Revelation 12, the author John writes this speaking to a future time known as the tribulation. I'm not here to get lost into pre-tribulation and post-tribulation and all these rapture conversations. I just wanted to show you something that I hope enlightens your thinking. John writes this. He says, a great sign appeared in heaven. And I'm gonna come back to these in a minute, but I want you to notice anytime I say a woman, a male child, or a dragon. All right, so he says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head. She gave birth to a son, a male child. There's another character. So you have a woman and a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness. Who is this woman that flees into the wilderness in a place prepared to her for by God where she might be taken care of security covenant for 1,260 days, three and a half years. You're going to see in just a moment who this woman is and who the male child is. And then the next character gets introduced, verse 7. The war broke out in heaven. Everything that happens in the physical is preceded by what has happened in the spiritual. I've said that for years from this platform. A war breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. There's conflict. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. So the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He just tries to get them to change the way they think. His whole attack on the world is to get you and I to change the way we think. 
He was hurled down to earth. His angels were with him. Verse 13. So when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. In Revelation 12, you'll see these names mentioned, and each has a meaning. The dragon clearly defined Satan. The woman, not Mary, Israel. How do you know that? Because Mary wasn't driven into the wilderness for 1,260 days. Guess who was? Israel. We're driven into the wilderness, taken outside, removed from the country, removed from the land. And the male child, of course, we know is Christ, Jesus. Here's my push on this today. Why does Satan then attack the nation of Israel? What is it that he has against the nation of Israel? Matthew 23, 39, Jesus makes a promise that the Jewish people would exist and welcome him when he returns in his glory. It says in the New Testament, Paul writes that they're going to be grafted in. That God's people will be with him. There is a promise. And by the way, where did the redeemer of the entire world come from? The Jewish people. Because God said this is how it would be so. So here you have Satan, who's completely trying to do all that he can to destroy Jewish people. Because if it's somehow he can, then somehow God's eternal plan is some way prevented. By which we know in Revelation, it'll never fully happen because God has already won. So all Satan can do is try to lead the world astray and get people to think that Jewish people are the enemy. And he's been doing it for thousands of years. In case you wonder how does Satan pull this off, he gets people to think a certain way. Satan has a special hatred towards Jews. And so behind every power, behind the power behind, listen, the power behind any anti-Semitism, prejudice against Jewish people, think about this. One of the first stories you read in the Old Testament about the enslavery of Jews, there's a leader, and his name is Pharaoh. You fast forward through Pharaoh, and you find all other kinds of leaders enslaving the Jews. Fast forward to Hitler, and today Hamas. I just want you to see today that what's happening in our world has been spoken. Pay attention to what happens in Israel. You want to know when Jesus is returning? Watch Israel. Watch his people. Pay attention to what's happening. You're missing it if you think this is just any other war there's a war happening behind the physical that we see. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Because I know for some of you are thinking, well, this is a war against the Jews. And it's horrible what's happening and then this and that, you know. 
But I want you to see something in Revelation 12, 17, in case you didn't know. Revelation 12, 17, John continues to write. Then the dragon was enraged at Israel. Enraged. A deep down hatred. So he went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Now pause. When you first read that, you think, oh, Jews. You read the next line. No. Who's the offspring? Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. The war that Satan has casted through people to get them to think a certain way about a certain group of people. I just want you to know, Satan, absolutely, this dragon, gets into the mind of people to get them to hate two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. Say it differently, anyone who professes Christ as Lord. The moment you profess Christ as Lord, you are now on an opposite team of Satan and his war, enemies, angelic powers go to work into people and they seek to kill you. I was reading this week about murders around the world of Christians. Satan's role we know is to lead the whole world astray, to divide nations into thinking that the church is the problem. I just want you to think, when I say the church, I'm not talking about a brand. I'm not talking about a building. I'm not talking about a place that you gather on a Sunday. Of course, we know the church is the body of Christ, right? Christ followers. And so his whole objective is to get the world to think about you in a negative light. If he can get their thinking to change that Christians are not who they say they are, uh, these people are fake, these people are false, uh, there's no truth. I mean, just think about all the ways that Satan will try to get people to think these ways. He deceives nations. Not just a person, but nations into thinking the church is dangerous, destructive, and deluded, meaning there's no truth in them. You ever met somebody? I'm sure you have in your life. You ever thought this yourself at some place that question Christ because of a church, because of the way a person treated you, because of the way a person talked to you, because of the way a person spoke to you, or missaid something? And Satan uses that statement to harness in your heart a little bit of hardening so that way you don't pay attention. You don't follow God's commands because some person said something, did something, influenced you in some way, and so you don't fulfill and follow God's commands and what he's called you to do in the church. Read this recently that since 2009, 52,250 Nigerian Christians have been murdered. Are you aware of what's happening in Nigeria? 
More Christians are being executed in Nigeria than any other country currently. Executed because they're Christ followers. Christians all over the world for centuries have been murdered for their faith. You know what martyrism is and people have been martyred. Still happening today. It's happening in our own country. Happens today in our own nation. You ever heard of honor killings? If you haven't, you should know. People, family members murdering their own children in our own nation because they profess Christ. I want to show you a video and then I'll continue on one more video here. Do you believe that Jesus is working in the Middle East and the most darkest places? <laughs> uh, we doubt, you know, we doubt. And uh, I, I've seen miracles, if I can call them miracles in my life, and I forget easily. You know, sometimes I forget who I am. Sometimes I watch a Fox News documentary again, and it's like, you know, I forget who is this guy? You know, like, <laughs> I forget who I am. And we as Christians, I'm sure that many times we forget who, who we are. And what's our duty? God is working. Do you think, like, yes, we hear about wars. And he told us, we shouldn't be surprised that there are wars and uh, disasters and all this stuff happening. This is a sign from him. But in the Middle East, yes, he is working. And... Um, I was like, nobody can believe that the son of Sheikh Hassan Youssef, the, one of the founders of Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas, will come to Christ. I, I, I cannot believe it. It's like a dream for me. It's, it's impossible. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, th thank God he worked in my life, and he worked in many others' uh, lives. Many people, uh, they put lives in, in danger. Many people were killed just for the last few months. Because they accepted him in, the, uh, uh, in their lives. And people told them, okay, we kill you. Uh, a father killed his daughter. He imprisoned her in a room for six months. She didn't see the light. He burned her. He tortured her to uh, uh, say, I'm not uh, worshiping Jesus Christ. And she refused. Finally, he cut her tongue and he killed her. This is a hero. I survived. Like, I, I, I got out of that uh, a place uh, which we do, I don't want everybody to leave. I want even to go back one day. We cannot just keep running away. We gotta face the society, face the devil right there and every every place. But I mean, this person is is a hero, and we hear many stories like this, many stories like this. So God is working, and as I said, a child in Gaza Strip uh, lately was. Uh, uh, her entire family was burned in front of her eyes. His entire family, her entire family. So imagine a child watching her father, her parents burning in fire. She was on, uh, on the TV explaining. I was looking at this and said like, what can heal her? Who can heal her? Seriously. Is it education, science, money, economic? How, she, how can she forget what she saw? She will never forget that. And the only cure, just forgiveness, 
Jesus Christ, his principles, love, his grace. This is what can help this child. And we have thousands, millions of people struggling through this uh, endless uh, circle. It's, it's, it's a big uh, uh, trap from the devil. I wanted to show that to you because it's one of the sons of one of the co-founders of Hamas who gave his life to Christ years ago. And uh, you could go read more about him if you'd like. And um, it was just a reminder, and I wanted to remind you today that in spite of all that's happening in our world, God is at work. I mean, he is gonna move mightily. He is, lives are being transformed. The church is expanding. The church is not declining. The church will always be called to expand because God has said it to be so. And he will absolutely fulfill his covenant with Abraham. And as Christians, we get grafted also into this covenant that he will bless you and he will multiply and he will fill his kingdom with his followers. It's great news. And we have a responsibility in that. And I love what he said towards the end. He said that this is, this is something we're called to do, to go to the world and tell people this gospel story. In fact, one of them said in the video that he doesn't want to leave fully, but he's called to go back into the Gaza Strip to tell these people the truth about Christ. I've been wondering, probably like some of you, when will this ever end? Well, certainly when Jesus returns, that could be said, but when will this fighting, you know? Because hate will just keep pouring into hate and it just keeps going. It's when Christ comes into their life and they come to find the truth of Christ and, and love and and forgiveness and understanding what's true and what's a lie. So then who's gonna tell them if everybody just leaves and abandons? Where do they find hope, the children, on both sides? Who will rise up and go and tell them this gospel story? Will you? Would you go into evil enemy territory? Lay down your life. Have your tongue cut out of your mouth for the gospel. This is not just another sermon. No more comforting Christianity. Consumer Christianity, I might say. At some point, there has to be a passion inside of God's people to rise up and realize that the calling of the church is to not attend a place to sit, to gather, to applaud, to sing a song and go home, but it's to tell someone else of what Christ has done in your life. The calling of the church always has been and always will be. If I could subtitle today's sermon, it'd be Rethink Church. Rethink Church. Gathering. The people. You say, what's the church? In a simple sentence, people who live like Jesus and lead people to Jesus. How are you doing? I'm not beating you up. I'm asking you, how are you doing? It's not joining a small group and singing songs. 
who have you taken by the hand and brought them to salvation? From depression to hope-filled. From broken to set free. The calling of the church will always be to lead people to him and to be like him and to live like him. And here's why that is heavy on my heart for sure. I believe our church specifically is in a season, and I've felt this way for some months now, that the call in our church is to expand our tent pegs. In the coming weeks or months, it seems as if the Lord is wanting to do something within our church. We've doubled in size over the past 12 months. And it seems to me that God is calling us to expand. And I'll unpack this again more. Next week, we're going to go into a season of prayer specifically. And I'll unpack more of that to you. But I want you to know that church was never meant to be a gathering of a select few. When Jesus walked around, he didn't go to see one. He didn't invite one. He would go and talk to crowds, multitudes of people. Because the calling of the church always has been and always will be to expand. This isn't a calling. Listen, I'm never going to ask you to grow the church for the sake of growing the church, the organizational church. I'm asking you to reach someone for Jesus today. Tell someone your story today. Not tomorrow. Why would you wait? You rob them of the very message of hope. We cannot live that way. And I'm asking you to expand this church and have a passion in you to see thousands come to know Christ. Why would you want any different? Jesus certainly would not. Matthew 9, to go back to bring it together, Notice that when Jesus says, I want you to do something, put Matthew 9 on the screen if you would. Andrews, if you would come up. Matthew chapter 9. Go back to Matthew 9, the very top. He proclaims the good news to the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, did you know that that is you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ? You're his Talmudim. Right? That's what Hebrew is for disciple. You're his Talmudim. This is the calling of the church. Always has been, always will be. And then he gives you a command and me a command. And the command is, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There will always be people around the world who need to know Christ. This is what he says. So I want you to do something, verse 38, ask, which means pray. I want you to ask the Lord of the harvest, Jesus, therefore to send out workers into his harvest field. This is interesting, and I think it should be interesting to you. The problem was not that there was not enough people to harvest. There was plenty of people to harvest, plenty of people to come to know him. The problem was there wasn't enough laborers to do the work. So practically speaking, Jesus does not call the church to pray for more people to be saved. And I'm not suggesting to you today that you shouldn't pray for someone to be saved. But Jesus didn't command for you to pray for more people to be saved. He asked, he said, pray. 
that someone would be willing to go tell their story. He says, pray that I'd send more workers into the harvest. If you're going to pray for something, don't pray for the salvation of someone. Pray that more people would actively share the gospel of Jesus. It might sound something like this. Lord, I pray for my cousin to be saved. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I pray that you give me the courage to call my cousin and lead them to you. Oh, wait, that's me. I pray for my coworker to be saved. I pray that you give me the words to say when I call my coworker. Go to work. Go and gather. You do not know the day nor the hour. And no, I'm not going to compare what we experience to what's happening in Israel or in Gaza. But there are people losing their lives right around you today. And however they die, they only have two places they'll go. Two options. There are people's marriages falling apart. Lives are falling apart. Anxiety ruling them. Caught in addiction. The calling of the church is to go and gather and it'll never change. Ever. Because the harvest is always plentiful. Recently, to bring this uh, personally to home, this is in my notes. Okay, just look at my clock. Um, Theo, where are you at? Are you in the room? Hey, what's up, man? So you worked, you worked yourself into my sermon in case you didn't know. Of course you didn't know that. So I wrote down a story to close out about Theo. And then uh, it was in my notes and I was talking to my wife, getting ready for the sermon. I was like, man, it's, I feel like the sermons, I don't know, sure, I was kind of talking with her about it. I didn't mention that to her, Theo. And then uh, she says, you know, it's kind of like Theo. And I was talking to her about the sermon, and she's like, it's kind of like Theo. And see what God is doing in his life, and he just can't stop telling people about Jesus. And so she kind of talks this way, you know. It's like, that's crazy. Look, Theo's in my notes at the end. I was going to say the same thing, you know. So I kind of had a, like, a moment. So I'll share something with you. Go and gather, go and gather, go and gather, go and gather. Watch. Something happens, and Theo, I'm going to pray this doesn't ever happen to you, but something happens to a lot of Christians in this room. You get really comfortable and cozy. I'm warning you. It's happened to a lot of them. And all of a sudden, they begin to think that this whole change is for me. So I go sit in a little church and join a group and serve and maybe occasionally give. I'm doing my duty. That is not Christianity. That's religion. Because I would say to you, Theo, something happened to every single one of us who's ever been radically transformed by the love of God. And many of us who've been tragically transformed by the love of God have a story. And that story goes something like this. At some point, God introduced himself to us. He became real to us. 
And I'll tell you what happened for most of us, if not every single one of you, when God radically transformed your life. When you were a teenager, when you were an adult, at some point when you were radically transformed by the love of God, you couldn't shut up. You see that story after story after story in Scripture. The woman at the well. I got to tell you what happened. Come meet this guy who told me everything I've ever done. Are you sure you won't tell me everything you've ever done? This woman committed adultery five times. Like, you know what I'm saying? Okay. Man. So the day we're outside last Sunday, man, Theo and I were chatting and I said, man, it's crazy, man. This is God, man. It's in my chest, man. It's like this is the whole thing. I'm watching this happen in his life. Many of you are seeing this, right? Some of you are, man, God, is, man, he's real. I can't shut up, man. I got the t-shirt. Every person that comes into my company, I tell them. But Jesus, last Sunday, I was standing there. And another person was standing there with me. And this is no knock on them. I said, so cool what's happening over there and in the in the very moment I thought that's why I do what I do and then I thought to myself and I think to myself now what am I doing what am I doing what happened to me there's a point in my life where it's like man I couldn't shut up you just go and gather again? Can you be reminded of this is why we do what we do and this is how I wrote it in here and I'm sorry I'm saying this but I, or you know taking a second here but I got to read it the way I wrote it and this is our prayer and Theo I'm asking you to have this in your heart today with us too and I pray this as a church body with all that's happening in our world today I pray we never get tired of hearing a person who has recently come to faith, say words like this. You'll never believe this. Man, those words are addicting. Some of my favorite words that I love to hear, people who've come recently to faith, been radically transformed by the love of God. Like, Man, this is crazy. I was in our starting point class this morning with Chris and a couple of guys. And and as they're getting to know more of Scripture, they're like, man, Chris, this is crazy. Every time you say something in there, Romans 12, like Romans 1, Ricky preaches on it, man. And then, this is kind of how they sounded, and then this is crazy because every time Chris talks, he's like, I was like, what are you talking on today, Chris? He's like, Sermon on the Mount. I mean, that's funny because I'm preaching in the same place. And so I, the group of guys in the table, I'm like, who do you think's doing that? And then you see the light go off in their head. That's pretty crazy. I know. And in those moments, man, that passion, the reminder, this is not a religious act. This is a calling by God from the beginning of the covenant of Abraham to go and gather his people. How do you do that? Romans, Revelation 12, last verse. How do you do that? How do I gather? Revelation 12, 11 says, the way that the dragon was overcome, come on, they triumphed over him 
the dragon, by the blood of the lamb, and by the word of your testimony. So Theo, don't shut up. It's by the word of your testimony. You don't have to be a theologian to reach someone for Christ. You just got to share your story, which is what Jesus said. The harvest is plentiful. A lot of people around you that don't know me. So don't go pray for them to be saved. Pray that you might have the courage to go share your story with them. And then go and gather. Go and gather. Jesus, we submit ourselves to you as a church body. We lay ourselves down. And we humbly ask you to give us courage to share our testimony of how you radically transformed our lives. Help us not to be stuck in religion, but to be passionate about the relationship that we have with you. May we not reach one. May we reach everyone that you put in our path. Help us to number our days, for the days are evil. Help us to be wise with our time. Help us to take every opportunity, make most of every opportunity that's in front of us. So Jesus, give us words to say. May our good deeds be shown before men that they might glorify our Father in heaven. May this not be just another sermon. In Jesus' name, amen.